understand I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Welcome, everybody. We have a special show for you today as we bring you only our second ever poet on Second Captain Saturday, the great Theo Dorgan. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murphy. Hey, Owen. How's it going? The first ever poet was Dieran Negrefa, who remains one of our most popular ever guests. Absolutely. We actually emailed Dieran during the week just to let her know we were getting Theo on. Very thorough of us. Very thorough. She got back within minutes, Murph, literally within minutes. To <laughs> like tell she was us, sitting there waiting for this email. Yeah, finally another poet to tell <laughs> us how ridiculously excited she was and how much she adored this week's guest there's so much to admire about Theo Dorgan's writing his eloquence his glitteringly bright intelligence his mastery of musicality and imagery these are Darren's words as you can probably tell by how well they're put <laughs> together <laughs> excuse me uh, oh I'm sorry that was her tribute for, from you harsh. to me at some stage like this I wouldn't go amiss Darren continues <laughs> once again definitely not me but what I prize over all those qualities is the distinctiveness of his voice both in speech and in the poems themselves no one writes like him he is so utterly himself that voice that voice is unmistakable. That is some serious poet-to-poet respect right there, Mm. Murph. Theo is one of the finest poets in the country. He showed those qualities just last weekend with a beautiful poem about Sinead O'Connor on the front page of the Irish Times coverage of Sinead. He's also bringing a serious love of hurling into battle today, Murph. Yes, he is. When Orty sat down to make their a seminal documentary, The History of Hurling, uh, just called The Game in 2018, they opened episode one with lines of wisdom from the likes of Liam Griffin, Brian Cody, Gerlach Nan, and Theo Dorgan. Uh, when they looked for someone from outside the game to speak to its importance in Irish life, Theo Dorgan was the first name they called. Smack in the middle of the boss and the ball just soars and you soar with it. And I think in a way you never come back. Theo Dorgan. Again, I'm, Theo I'm, Dorgan's words, I'm not very, yours. <laughs> I'm very, very excited about so this. You said he was, but you said he's steeped in hurling. Yeah, he's, uh, his father founded the Napirshig Hurling Club, which basically was born out of Glen Rovers, Dorgan. one of the most storied uh, hurling clubs in the country. Napirshig, just a storied now. Made most famous probably by the O'Halpine brothers, also John Gardner. They've uh, contributed tons of players to Cork Hurling over the years. Uh, we were there once upon a time yeah, uh, in the clubhouse. We did a show many, many uh, years ago from there. And the man who found it, one of the men who founded it, Theo Dorgan's father. Theo has dedicated a lot of his life to spreading the word, not just of hurling, but also of poetry, trying to make it as accessible as possible to as many people as he can. In his time as director of Poetry Ireland, he came up with the idea of the Great Book of Ireland, a modern version of the Book of Kells, made up of contributions from some of the greatest poets and artists of the 20th century to serve as a sort of artefact of the best of Irish art for centuries to come. You might have heard of Samuel Beckett. Murph, Seamus Heaney, mm. some of these. Even major I've heard players. of them. It's, it's the unspoken uh, subtext there of Theo's, your words. Zone. Yeah, Theo's old lecturer, John Montague, <laughs> wrote an amazing piece in the New York Times a few years later about going to meet Beckett in a Paris nursing home to persuade him to commit what might have been his final words to print before his death mm. to this project. So I can't wait to chat to Theo about all that. But will his hurling background be enough to take top spot in our competition to become second captain's greatest non sports person, sports person of 2023? What has he got to beat, Kira? Could have been a contender. Could, Could have been, been somebody. somebody. 
Well on, we have a new frontrunner after last week. Cork's own Samantha Barry, Global Editor-in-Chief of Glamour Magazine, wowed the judges, some of whom she once shared a house with, to accumulate <laughs> 78 points for an early clubhouse lead. Today's contestant, Cork's own Theo Dorgan, should however be cautiously optimistic. Any top score below 80 is get atable. <laughs> uh, and both historically have done very well here. Derny Griefa got 83 points a couple of years back, and all she did was win a Supermax raffle for all Ireland hurling final tickets. So we could be about to drive a wedge between two of our nation's finest poetry exponents. Dorgan has hurling pedigree, an adventurous spirit, and an intimidatingly mellifluous voice, <laughs> which means I have much to ponder. Email editor at secondcaptains.com, tweet us at secondcaptains. You will be hearing that unmistakable voice of Theo Dorgan right after this from Bob Dylan. So long, honey bee, where I'm bound, I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word, babe. So I just say fairly well I ain't saying you treated me unkind You could have done better but I don't mind You just kind of wasted my precious time but Don't think twice, it's alright That's Don't Think Twice by Bob Dylan, especially for our guest on Second Captain Saturday, who, as well as being a big Dylan fan, is also one of the great Irish poets of his generation, winning multiple awards across more than a quarter of a century. He's written novels, memoirs about his midlife sailing vocation, and had his work translated into more than 10 languages. As director of Poetry Ireland, he edited The Great Book of Ireland, a modern-day version of The Book of Kells, featuring some of the greatest poets of the 20th century, including Heaney, Beckett, and Alan Ginsberg. It would be wrong of us to boil Theo Dorgan's entire glittering career down to just two poems, but that's exactly what I'm going to do because both the match down the park and All-Ireland Final are sure to earn him serious points in his efforts to become our greatest non-sports person, sports person of 2023. Theo Dorgan, thanks so much for coming in. How are you doing? How are you doing? I don't recognise that fellow you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I should point out, by the way, those poems I mentioned were both written long before now, not just this week to curry favour. I mean, we would have appreciated that level of effort on, but that's fine. What is it it about All-Ireland Final Day that you wanted to capture by writing a poem about it? Everybody goes to an All-Ireland final is conscious of who's not there with them. Mm. Like your dad isn't with you or maybe your son has gone to Australia or your daughter's in New Zealand and somebody. I always loved that Michal and Mirahartig, we, we, we think of Michal as the great soldier, but there's his daughter feeding him all the lines and yeah. the stats and everything. <laughs> yeah. Nobody is on their own at an All-Ireland final. You always have the ghosts with you, you know. Mm. And there is, because it's such a sense of occasion, and maybe it's just me, but I always think, you know, this won't come again. And someday I won't be here. But the thing I love about ga matches in general, football and hurling, is the camaraderie between sides. You know, I remember, was it 99? Kenny beat Cork. And the the usual suspects, the Cork Road, the drummer, the fellow with the Mexican hat, Bomber yeah. Roach, my yeah. old schoolmate <laughs> from the convent days. They're all lined up outside, about 300 and flags, banners and everything. And they marched out as if they'd won. And the Kilkenny fans just made an avenue on either side of them and clapped them yeah. on the way out. And any unsuspecting tourist passing by would assume the red and white crowd must have won that match, you know. Yeah. And it's um, there's a sense of, it's for the game, you know. Though, mind you, I remember years ago, um, the Indo asked Heaney and myself to write a piece, Cork and Derry, in the football. I was only going out of 
forgotten loyalties. I don't consider Gaelic football a real game. Not like hurling. <laughs> but um, we both you finished... You placed yourself very specifically we, on the... We both the, finished yeah. up on the same pious note, but in the end it will be the game that mattered, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm walking in the gate and Heaney's coming in from my left diagonally. We're both heading for the stands and he looks at me and there comes me and says, Feck that, it's up, Derry. It's up, Cork. So I love that sense of permitted tribal loyalties, mm. but it doesn't endure after the match. It's just... Yeah, there's a lovely ritual as well, I think, about All-Ireland final day. Here is a snapshot of Ireland at this exact moment. And Daryl Breen on the BBC was on the BBC coverage of the All-Ireland final last week, and he made this beautiful point about the playing of uh, Nothing Compares to You on the big screen. And, you know, it might seem mawkish or it might seem heavy handed in in another scenario. But on All-Ireland Final Day, here's a song that I know you all want to hear. And here's a thing that we all want to kind of experience together. Here's us. Yeah. I remember the same thing, that standing ovation when um, they asked for him um, to recognise the passing of Seamus Heaney. Yeah. In Croke Park a couple of days after he died. And I got a standing ovation, I think. Standing ovation for a poet. We're, we're not bet yet. <laughs> yeah. you know? But it truly, though, it, it's interesting that, well, you get 82,500 people. It's, it's something to do with sort of non-antagonistic tribalism. That's mm. big mouthful now. But, you know, you're there with your tribe, but, you know, there's a bigger tribe and that tribe somehow is all of us. Mm. And I've been saying all through the, the since the crash, you know, the only way out of this is all of us together. And we still have that sense in Ireland, somehow, some sense of all of us. And th- that that's one of the, the catalytic moments, I think, is the All-Ireland final, you know. It's one of the few occasions, for instance, when people will wholeheartedly sing out on the Vian without any sense of having to qualify it or, you know, uh, modify your stance towards it. It's You're not singing a militaristic nationalist song you're saying here's all of us singing together you know <laughs> Theo your dad was a big hurling man founded in the Pearshire Club in Cork when he was a teenager coming into his 20s okay very young though to be yeah, co-founding a club he, he played minor with the Glen then a bunch of them well five of them decided to found the Pearshire and they it was quite um, an interesting idea the, the first match they played against the Glen they were complained to the county board for speaking Irish on the pitch <laughs> Sorry, you know, the Napiershik lads were speaking Irish. Well, that was one of the foundational principles of the club right. that yeah, they would yeah. speak Irish. They would try to, you know, and they were all fellas worked like my dad worked in Dunlops, they worked in Fords, they were driving buses, they were great guys all together. And um, the club crest is the four fingered red hand, and you know the the idea was they'd put the, the thumb back on when Ireland was united. I mean, they were quite ah, okay. So th- is that what was born out of? They felt that maybe the Glen and other clubs weren't adhering to these Yeah, but also, these, uh, also they, they, deals. The, the area was growing and there was enough interest to sustain two clubs. So, yeah, they, they got it off the ground and they had one great failing in the Piercing. Whenever they got near a final, they celebrated the day before. <laughs> <laughs> and dear God, the number of finals they nearly won. You know? That seems that seems not great now. I would say that as an idea, as a in a high performance environment, uh, yeah. as I'm sure they were stretching for at that time. High performance environment. <laughs> Listen, we're talking about the time when what's his name, Sean Leary, used to go to pitch with ten carols in his sock <laughs> and a box of matches down the other sock. You know. 
on. <laughs> and if he had to run more than three yards, he'd nearly collapse. But he kept scoring and scoring and scoring. It was those are very different times. Mm. The idea of high performance. Yeah, there was a, the the great Eugene McGee line from uh, 1982 when he talked about the sacrifice that had led to Offaly being able to deny ke- uh, carry the five in a row. You know, there are lads in the, there in that dressing room who haven't who haven't had a pint since Wednesday night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you how do you remember your dad in that context as you were growing up? There must have been a big cachet to him being one of the sort of godfathers kind of, was, of the club. But it, it was just such so much a part of the natural day to dayness of things that I never really gave it any um, any great weight. What I remember of them is going to matches on the crossbar of the bike. And these were concrete roads of the day. And the bump in your arse every time you went over <laughs> on the bike, you know. Because your poem, The Match Down the Park, that's what that, that's about uh, tr- your trips to Porky Cueve with your dad. You talk about after the game, then the long, slow pedal home, weaving between the cars on Centre Park Road, leaning back into the cradle of his arms, ah, yeah. which is just such a beautiful image. How precious were those moments? Oh, then? absolutely. And in fact, it's only in recent years I've begun to feel a little bit uneasy at the fact that because I was the eldest um, and I began to feel a bit uneasy in recent years of thinking that's a, a closeness and intimacy that my other brother's ancestors didn't have. And you had a lot of them. You had a big family. Oh, yeah. I'm the eldest of 15. Yeah. Wow. Um, 13 now. But um, but I remember that, that sense of warmth. And, you know, of course, it never occurred to me, you know, that's a long pedal. Back to Redemption Road from down the park, you know, but it never seemed to bother him. I'm very interested that you feel now a certain amount of guilt that some of your younger siblings didn't get to experience that. At the time, what what, what do you feel you got from that, that ultimately your siblings were denied? Well, I, I don't know that guilt is, 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 is exactly a thing. Maybe regret that they didn't get to have that as well. But you have to remember there was um, the emphasis and value put on the eldest child and more especially the eldest son in those days you know it went unquestioned but I suppose what I got from it was a sense that my father outside the house was a social creature he didn't drink he was a pioneer he didn't drink ever um but, you know, I took it for granted at the time. But now I look back and I think the way people's faces would light up when they'd see that. Really? Yeah. I remember being told that when he died and the whole factory, all of Dunlop's and half of Ford's turned up at the funeral, being told that he was kind of the father confessor in Dunlop's. That fellas had having problems or in difficulties. They'd come and talk to that and he'd listen to them and he'd give them good advice. And at that age, of course, I was just thinking, oh, that fellow, what does he know? You know, <laughs> He's only my dad. You know. What age were you when uh, your dad died? I was 28. Right. And 21 when my mother died. Mm. And of course, you know, it's, it's a classic. It was just about at the time when we'd have been able to talk to each other. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that kind of deprivation is universal, really. There's always the might have been. There were remarkable people, really. My, my mother was an amazing manager. I mean, she's, you could make her minister for finance. You know, one man's wages and children's allowance, and she kept 15 of us fed, clothed, and in school every day or else. What was your, you mentioned the status of being the eldest sibling there. Was that a sort of exalted status or did you have a quasi-parental role? No, I I, I suppose the best way is to look back on it from the period when I was Chief Justice, Ambassador and um, Dispenser of Rules and Regulations. Um, It's it's a curious thing being the eldest because there's nothing out ahead of you so you're making it all up. 
I mean, they tell terrible stories about me, my brothers and sisters. Remember, my dad go to work every morning for eight, an eight o'clock start. And my mum was having a baby and um, I was feeding the kids. So apparently what I did, apparently, I, is I filled a big mixing bowl, put a whole box of cornflakes in, threw the milk in, I made them stand in a line. They come up with three spoons <laughs> and the next got three. Because I'd figured out it's only one bowl and one spoon to wash. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> but um, there, there are dark rumours among the, the younger sisters, especially that it was a case of three for you, one for me, three for you, one for me. I'm sure I wasn't like that. But you have a natural sense of responsibility to the others and... You want to shield them. And, um, you know, I remember when I left school, going back and telling the Christian brother if any of my brothers were beaten the way I was beaten in school, I would come for him. Mm. And I'd break both his arms and both his legs with no compunction. Of course, I wouldn't have. But um, I did go and tell him that, and not one of them was beaten ever after. What was his reaction when you said that to him face to face? Oh, Dordogon, you were always a pup. To which my response was, well, brother, who educated me? You know? <laughs> I was a bit mouthy, I have to admit. Yeah. How bad was the treatment you got from I don't think I spent a day in secondary school without being beaten. I mean, you know, slapped or this particular brother had a, a penchant for the half hurley. And um, I was into sixth year before he went for me one day and I just caught the hurley in there and said, please don't ever do that again. And my feeling at that moment was shame that I hadn't done it years before. I'd been too afraid to do it before well so many were so many are oh, yeah. in the situation oh I mean I've, I, there are guys in my class who were destroyed sport might be a bit of an outlet for a lot of people facing that kind of situation Theo would you turn to hurling growing up given how involved your dad was I was the knackiest corner forward you ever saw in your life for about five minutes <laughs> and I, I, was, I was I was small I was the smallest guy in the class but I'd get in places where the, where the big brute defenders couldn't reach down to you you know and then after about five minutes I'd trance off I'd start thinking about other things so I was always one of the last four to be picked but um, no I, I loved when we, we had I actually always thought it was really cool in my dad that he, none of us ever turned out to be good hurlers and he didn't mind well if he did he kept it to himself but there was no pressure get out there and train or anything Um I never played for Piercing, not even for the under-14s. Uh, the word had got out that you know, he won't be there for most of the game, you know. <laughs> you moved out of Dublin eventually, Theo. You moved out of Cork, I should say. You moved to Dublin uh, as the director of Poetry Ireland. Now, they say their role is to bring the best poetry to as wide an audience as possible. They say that. No, that wasn't what I inherited. No? <laughs> no. It was an old boys club. I mean, one of the first things I did was score the country for women poets and put on readings for them and get them gigs and so on. But no, it, it was, you see, I've always said I would sooner read poems to a bunch of half-drunk dockers at two o'clock in the morning than in a university. Why? Because poetry is a natural thing. It's not there to be evaluated and parsed and it's not up to anybody to sit out there and decide this is a first division team, this is a Talton Cup team, this is an, an over team. Um, poetry is a nat one of the most natural reflexes humanity has. We reach for poetry. I mean, look, what do you do when someone does something beautiful? You say, how ah, was poetry in motion? You know, we have that deep, deep sense that poetry matters. Not poetry the way it used to be taught in schools. I don't think it is taught the same way anymore, That as if it was a puzzle set out to crucify you. Poetry is, is our deepest feelings 
produced under pressure, aiming for clarity in language. And we all want that. We all want to be able to say exactly what we mean. And look what we do when someone dies, when we have, you know, at weddings, at funerals, at key moments in our lives. I was going to say, we reach unremarkably yeah. for a poem. Yeah, that, not that, always a good poem, but that doesn't matter. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that is when, for the vast majority of people, I think, when when you reach for poetry, it is at these those moments of highest emotional pitch, I suppose, in your life. You know, the, that's OK, too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't think we should have compulsory poetry thinking on, on the radio <laughs> at five to nine every morning. You know, <laughs> no, I, I think it's like everything else that we really value. It's when we're most ourselves is when we reach for it. And that's fine. The one thing I always tell kids who are feeling tense about poetry in school is you don't have to like it all. It's just you don't have to like all music. You know, we all have elective affinities. We all have things that we feel touched by or a connection to. And I say, you don't have to like all poetry. Just find poems that you like and stick with those. And often they lead you out to others and others and others. But um, the idea, and it's it's a pernicious effect of the way poetry used to be taught in schools, for all I know it still is in some places, that you're obliged to like it all. You're obliged mm-hmm. to understand. There are poems I still don't understand that I have off by heart and I still don't understand. I often don't understand my own. <laughs> I, you know, in the sense that yeah, yeah, it yeah. might be years later that something discloses itself. The poem you, you referred to there, The Match Down the Park, it was only as I got older and began to think about um, how men express or don't express their emotions that um, I've, I realised what I'd done with settling back into my father's arm on the bike. I was, when I wrote the poem, when it came in and I was trying to catch it in the air and get it down, I was thinking about the match, the match itself. And it's only afterwards that I realised what I'd done. What that says about the, the capacity of men to show feeling and warmth and and that was years later that I copped that on. And if that can happen with your own stuff, well, you can imagine how. That's amazing. So the match was nearly incidental to your experience with your dad. No, it was the other way around. The match was what I was when the poem At was the new. At the time, yeah. I mean, the poem was new. That was, I was telling you, sir, about that too, by the way. Um, my, my brother, Jack, who's a great Piercing stalwart and a lovely, lovely man, and he looks after all the underage teams. He got them to commission a poem. Um, the, and which became the Magic on the Park for their 50th anniversary. They were all a bit disconnected. I wasn't there. I was away somewhere um, when he read it out at the Mass. They had a Mass. And I think they were all a bit disconnected. They were expecting a kind of, you know, dear God, look down on purity. They're lovely, <laughs> lovely men, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, suddenly afterwards, they're all looking for a copy. So he hopped in the car and he went back to his, his, his office to, to make photocopies. And he got back. There were major rows going on all over the bar about what match it was that Bertie Dorgan's <laughs> son was writing about. <laughs> yeah. Of course, it was a composite of about six yeah. different <laughs> matches, you know. No, you'll find that was 62 <laughs> I, against I, the bar. I exact thought about it in my head as I was reading it uh, uh, this week that I was like, God, no, I'm sure someone sat down there and thought if Keller was playing then, <laughs> that must be, so he played championship in these years. Keller, who was in goal if Keller yeah. was scoring on that? I mean, Tom Knott. It was Roger Toohey on that. <laughs> and of course, you make, it's all made up. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. make it all up. Well, Emily Dickinson said, tell the truth, but tell it slant, you know? Mm. Yeah. You came up with The Great Book of Ireland, which was oh, yeah. a gigantic project, more than 120 artists, 140 poets written on, on vellum like the Book of Kells which I'd imagine provided its challenges. 
Oh, geez, that was madness. <laughs> it was, no, it was ridiculous. I'd just taken over Poetry Ireland and I was putting in 50, 60 or weeks and then we took that on. But the origin of that is funny. I used to work on the building sites in London when I was a student. At the summers, I'd work on the building sites and then go to museums, galleries, concerts, whatever, at the weekend. And I was in the British Museum. This is back in the 70s. And there was a manuscript room and you could see the spiky handwriting of Marvell, the big loopy opium fluid hand of the Coleridge and the neat little postmaster's handwriting of Wordsworth, right? And you could get the feel of the person from their handwriting. And that stuck. And then that lovely man, Gene Lambert and Eamon Martin, who alas is no longer with us, they were running Clash Mills Trust. It was a charity for artists with disabilities and their carers. And they'd published a book of poems by Paul Durkin with paintings by Gene. And they the Groenia from their office came to ask could I help them shift the last remaining copies and I said tell them come in I have an idea and I wanted originally to do a book and get 50 poets to write in in their own hand and then get an artist to illustrate it you know and Jean stuck up for the artist if you're having 50 poets you'll have 50 artists and you, you know yourself what it ended up as but the idea was to, to make it and sell it you know simply a fundraiser but it became a thing in itself you got some heavy hitters involved well, Theo, including Samuel Beckett. You dispatched your old lecturer, John Montague, to Paris to get that's Beckett right, on John board. John was in Paris and I got him to bring. We sent over the vellum and the pen and ink. And um, and Beckett had already sent a lovely postcard saying, look, I'm not well. I'm very close to the end. No, I don't have the strength to do this. But we ambushed him by sending Montague into him because himself and Montague were old mates. And, uh, and he agreed to do it. And um, John tells the story that, he, you know, he writes it out. It's a re- rewriting of a poem he wrote in 1932 called Da Tak when his father died in the nursing home in Portobello. And he finished in and wrote his name and then said, that's done. And he threw the pen and ink bottle into the waste paper basket. And that was, as far as we know, the last thing he wrote. Wow. Yeah. There's a great line in, in John Montague's telling of the meeting with Beckett where Beckett says to Montague, this man Dorgan, is he all right? <laughs> <laughs> so Irish. Isn't yeah, it? So yeah. Irish. It's That's just so absolutely Irish. perfect. I love it. But it is, it's a very, it's a really poignant scene. He asks him, he asks Beckett how he is and Beckett says, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. So I, I think it, it goes to the heart of what you're talking about, of trying to get people like that as part of your project for, for posterity. And in his case, just a couple of weeks away from, from passing away. A couple away. of weeks later he died. Yeah, I was in Lisbon when, when he died. I just saw the paper, you know, and it was front page news. Of course, now I'm thinking, you know, how many of them have passed on, you know, mm. how many of the contributors. But that's it, the work. We put it on vellum because vellum has a long life. And so what we told people when they came to us, give us an image or a poem that you think will be of interest in a thousand years time. I can't tell you that. <laughs> How do you go about answering that question? Well, you should see some of the reactions. I remember one fellow he couldn't write. His hand was shaking so much at the thought of it, you know. And others came in like Seamus Heaney and just wrote it out. <laughs> well, that too. You know, <laughs> grand. You know. It was funny, actually. You could see, especially with the poet, you could see what kind of schoolgirl or schoolboy they were. You know, Montague was there and he's kind of half hiding the page and the tongue is sticking out one kind of, <laughs> and his head and he's looking around. He's expecting a slap on the back of the ear, you know. And the teacher was Seamus. You could see he was a good boy, a good student. He just sits up straight and writes it, you know. Other <laughs> mm. people dithered. And, but you see, the, the other, I mean, people like Ted Hughes and Alan Ginsberg, we thought, you know, this is, an island is a meeting place. It's not, you know, we, when we say insular, we mean closed off and closed in. 
every island in the world is a crossroads. And Irish poetry at that time was completely open to the world. And we were beginning to understand how much the wider world valued Irish poetry. Um, and so we said, anybody washing through the island in the, while we're making the book, we'll get them. Like the Book of Kells is hegemonic. It's one gospel, one version. Here it is. And one artist. This is who we are now. It's a plurality of voices. It's 140, 120, 260 different voices, different mentalities, because that's who we are now. We're so various. There's no single Irish identity. Mm. And we're so open to the world. You said you wanted the initiative was to sell it. It didn't sell then for a long time. Oh, no, it didn't. Um, the Library of Congress wanted it, but they felt it would be wrong that it shouldn't be in Ireland. And um, so we stuck with it and um, we weren't going to compromise on the, the value of it because there is. But then how do you put a value on something that's unique, something that's never been done, that mm. there's only one of? Um, so I'd, I'd put an arbitrary value on it of a million we got it in the end. John Fitzgerald, God bless him. I mean, when he was, he's just retired now, a fine poet too. And he's coming out more as a poet now that his time as librarian, he was the librarian in UCC. He arranged with donors to, to buy it for the library. And they're going to develop um, a, a facility there during the process of doing that where the book will be on display and you'll have a digitised copies and you'll be able to flick through the pages and they'll open a page a day. And... Um, it's a kind of magical talisman. That was fun. It was fun, yeah. but it nearly wrecked our heads. I think know? there's something very interesting as well about uh, the idea of, as you say, vellum, but actually just the physical thing of of the book itself. That so so much of this is, oh well, you know, we've created a website, and I mean, a website that allows everyone to look at this book would be an amazing thing. But of course, that's to suggest that the internet will be here for you know, the next thousand years. Whereas the idea of a physical thing like the Book of Kells that you can hold and look at and smell, it, it hits very differently. I and think. singularity, you're right. And singularity as well. There's only one. And that in itself generates a power, generates a kind of magic. But it restates something to it. Sort of, it repossesses who we used to be. But it was also an act of faith in the future. You make this as best you can in the most durable materials you can think of. And you're sending a message a thousand years into the future saying, this is who we were. And the, the, for mo all of the contributors felt this in one way or another, that we're used to looking at the past as a source of enrichment for us. It doesn't dawn on us that we are somebody else's past. You know? You're sending it forward. Yeah, well. that, yeah. We, that there will be a generation for whom we are the past. So it's a sense of challenge and also of release because you think, look, the story goes on. The story goes on, and I'm just an element in the story. Nuala Nigonal, wonderful poet, has a beautiful few lines in one of her poems. I put my hope afloat on the stream of the language. You know, you just give it to the river. Nobody knows when the dust is settled what poems will be kept. That's what you're doing. You're trying to make the craft um, as capable as possible of staying alive on the stream for as long as possible without sinking. But a lot of things are launched with great fanfare and they sink without trace within a lifetime. So you just make these things in hope. You're listening to one of our greatest poets, if not hurlers, Theo Dorgan, on Second Captain Saturday. After the break, we'll see what else is in his sporting locker as he tries to knock fellow Corkonian Sam Barry off top spot on our greatest non-sports person, sports person leaderboard. 
second captain, first captain, whatever. You're listening to Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy and one of the best Irish poets of his generation, Theo Dorgan, who's with us today. Theo's been doing his chances of becoming this year's greatest non-sports person, sports person. A bit of damage, truth be told. You've come clean, Theo, and told us, despite your dad founding one of the best hurling clubs in Cork, you weren't actually up to much yourself as a kid, but you can still redeem yourself. Tell us, what sport are you involved in now? Um, staying alive, <laughs> which is great sport altogether. Just, You're doing just, all right so far. Just, yeah, well, you know, score no draw, draw around, <laughs> um, You know, maybe it's a little closer than it used to be. Um, in 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 midlife, as I think you mentioned, I I, I started running away to sea, um, and I haven't been out for a while now. My my beloved Paula tells me that she always knows when I'm heading out on another voyage because my eyes go from green to blue <laughs> and when they're blue I'm gone <laughs> so I, I never look at my eyes in the mirror because I don't want to see what colour they are but yeah I started running away to sea I, I remember just trying to describe it to somebody once and said do you know when you were 11 or 12 summer holidays doesn't matter whether it's a sunny day or a grey day you hop out of bed into the shorts on with yesterday's t-shirt I'm with the clerks strap over sandals downstairs scarf down a bowl of cornflakes out into the yard and the day is endless mm. anything could happen you know also the novelty of doing what I'm told I mean I must say that's one of the, <laughs> the hidden joys of sailing is you know, you know, you, know you, you can't just do something at random and see what happens there are things you don't do on a boat you know? <laughs> and um, so the skipper knows so I would be learning Mm. And I had terrible trouble when I was a kid with um, being taught. And so it's kind of novel experiences. That's a second dose of a return to childhood, I suppose, is, you know, you're actually listening and you're taking in what you're being told and then you're doing it. and You're seeing that it works and why it works. And now you know it. And um, I was like being given another life, you know, when you're three days out and it might be 20 days or 10 days or. 35 days before you'll see land again there's a great feeling of release everybody talks about be here now well you've no option on a boat out in the deep ocean there is nowhere to be except here and there is only now I should say here if we're talking about Antigua to Kinsale that's this the kind of dream. We're, not, we're not talking Ro- Rosler Sherberg here this is mm. some some serious sailing. I know you've done a little bit yourself here. Well, <laughs> under on you couldn't be more wrong. I'll have to stop you right there. But I did have an opportunity to be on a, like a yacht, basically mm. four or five of us on this uh, twenty meter uh, craft, and I've never felt more useless mm. in my entire life because the skipper was the only real sailor on the boat, and he had to be ship's cook. He had to work the sails. He had to work the electronic navigation. He had to do everything. He had to be an expert in absolutely every part to make sure that the boat moved 10 metres across the sea. And it it just kind of blew my mind how not knowing how to do these things is a matter of life and death. If you're at sea, if you don't know how to fix it, no one knows how to fix it. That is one of the great things. I remember, I, I always say I'm a gifted natural coward. <laughs> but we were down in the South Atlantic. We were taking a boat from Chile to Cape Town. And, you know, the wind, we were getting 70, 80 mile an hour gusts. We were getting 12 metre waves. And then a 14 metre wave came in from the side and slammed us over. We we're about 1,500 miles from any realistic land. And I thought this would be a good time to get really scared, Theo. And, <laughs> and then I, I astonished myself. I thought, yeah, well, you know, if this would have to happen and that would have to happen and this other thing would have to happen for 
you know, to end mm. up in a life raft. And if you're in a life raft, there's, you know, life raft capacity for 16 in the two rafts, and there's only 12 of us, so that's okay. It's Anders Grand, yeah. And, and anyway, in four hours' time, you have to be up to sail the boat, so you better go to sleep. So I did. <laughs> and I have to say, it's one of the most surprising moments <laughs> of my life. It was as, as un- because we were so far out, there was nobody coming for you. There's only us, and you're a part of it. And I had to be there for those guys and for the ones who'd gone down to try and get some sleep. And you can be scared later. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what would the 12-year-old Theo Dorgan have thought of the idea of you now s- moving in sailing circles? He'd be very sorry that the cork that I grew up in was so class-ridden that you didn't go sailing unless your family had a boat. Mm. Because, I, you know, as soon as I started saying that, damn it, I wish I'd been doing this since I was a child. Because that's the image that we'd have of it. That's, uh, so the kids sail yacht crowd. It's or very elitist element to it. Yeah, it, has really. ver- it has changed a great deal now. And, I mean, anybody can go sailing. I mean, people are desperate for crews. And one thing about that I did learn is... The ones who actually sail, as opposed to the ones who, um, you know, park the boats in the yacht club and never take them out. The ones who actually sail, they love to bring new people into it. They love teaching. A key part of this ranking process is going to be your sporting highlights. So can you pick one out of this sailing career that you came to a bit later in life? I suppose the, 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 the one that has bragging rights is sailing around Cape Horn. Just sail around Cape Horn kind of has kind of almost a mythic resonance, you know. We were coming down to the Horn in a forced tree and we were sweating. We were praying to all the gods that were for a bit of wind. Because, you know, there's no point in going around it whether you could kayak around it. And people have kayaked around Cape Horn, by the mm. way. So we were delighted. Up came a forced ten and we went past it like an express train. You know. <laughs> Grins on our... I took my Napiercic jersey with me, by the way. Oh, I wore it to go around Cape Horn <laughs> so that I have because I had to see you know Cork is like Dublin there's very much a north side south side thing yeah. and um, I got a photograph my brother put it up in the bar, in the bar up in the Piercing Club um, and the Piercing man who ventured farthest into the south side <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only to be if I come in there one night and I said come here where the F is Cape Horn anyway <laughs> what's that all about <laughs> you know so put that puts a measure on it. West Cork somewhere or like what, what are we talking about like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. wasn't there a choppy trip to the Bay of Biscay oh that was well there, there was a lovely man called Oliver Hart from Oysterhaven near Kinsale he had a beautiful boat called Spirit of Oysterhaven it's a beautiful boat I'd learned I, that was the first time I sailed was on that but he was taking it down to Nazarene I shipped me along as crew. There was a lovely lad called Simon Sweeney. Um, but Simon and myself were on, and we were coming, we were coming down, and it's, it got rough, now I have to say. And um, I hadn't realised that the whole point of a keel is the weight keeps you upright, but when you get healed, there's a pendulum effect that when the keel is pushing up against the water, the weight of the water is pushing it back down. So I think I'm sitting, I'm there on the wheel thinking, this is going to go over. It's going to topple over. It's going to capsize. I hadn't understood the, the pendulum principle, mm. right? So that was kind of scary. And I was, I was very anxious. Then we went around Finister and um, the reefing went on the main. The reefing lines went on the main. So oh, that's not great. <laughs> and, uh, and then we had a small fire in the engine room, which Oliver put on. I thought, that's not great. Either. This sounds, yeah, this is uh, not And then the wheels started sticking. We could only point or 10 degrees this way or that way. And that, uh, yeah, Oliver, uh, clever words, <laughs> you know. Should we have informed the life force? And Oliver was very calm and explained. And of course, then I'm mortified thinking, you coward, you cowardly fecker, you know, you're embarrassing yourself here. <laughs> but I just simply didn't know that 
boats aren't designed to be out mm. in this. So that's grand. We got in to Muros, up one of the rias there in Galicia. And the next day we're in a taxi going to Santiago de Compostela, which is the nearest laundrette, because everything in the boat is soaked at this mm. stage. And the guy driving the taxi says, um, so, you know, how did you end up here? And we explained to him, that, ah, si, si, el costo del morto. No, <laughs> the coast of death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this claw came over from the back seat, and Simon grabs me and says, Tell him to stop saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently, he was dodgier than I realised. Yeah. But that was a bit spooky. Ignorance is bliss sometimes as well. Well, speaking of ignorance, we had a, a, um, a sat phone, which you'd get maybe 30 seconds of connection. And at this stage, Paula had got so brisk that as soon if I got a signal to ring her, first thing you say, Give me your lat long. Yeah. Latitude, longitude, you know. So I said, what's the word like? Because ah, it's, it's, it's a bit breezy. We're going up and down like an elevator at this stage. Oh, yeah, is that right? She says, what I don't realize is she's hacked into a weather site, satellite, <laughs> and she's looking down at what I'm saying, and she knows I'm lying to her <laughs> because I don't want her worrying, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, I only discovered this when I got home. You know? <laughs> but that was, uh, that was fun. Well, I think surviving that... Surviving that Bay of Biscay trip is a pretty good sporting highlight. I mean, we don't usually do this, but I have checked with the rule makers here, Theo, and they've informed me you can make a late play for extra points by Tell sharing me. a live reading of your wonderful poem, All Ireland Final. I suspect you're making up these rules, but I will. There, well, there is a certain <laughs> amount of. And, 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 and there's a fine Guidance. poet and golfer, John O'Donnell, um, sent me a text on Sunday. I was over in Galway say he was heading to the croaker but he'd read this as a preparation yeah. you know, which I thought was such a nice thing mm-hmm. to do and to tell me about it All-Ireland Final We stand for the anthem buoyant and tribal heart beating with heart our colours brave our faces turned towards the uncertain sun The man beside me takes my hand Good luck to yours he says I squeeze his calloused palm and then He's gone, a shadow socket where he was. The one beside him vanishes and another before me. All around Croke Park, one by one, we wink out of existence. Tens, hundreds, then thousands. The great arena emptying out, the wind curling in from the open world to gather us all away, each single one of us. I could feel myself fail at the end. But then maybe everyone thought that, each single one of us the last to go. The whistle blew and we all came back with a roar, everything brighter and louder, desperate and vivid. I held his hand a moment longer. I wished his team all the luck in the world. Oh, it's so good. That's so, so evocative. Um, to be honest, that puts you in number one position for me, but I'm not the one you have to impress. <laughs> Murph is going to rank the sporting life oh, holy God. of the great Theodore. I hear no, lads, lads, lads. Can I have a bye here? Can I just <laughs> be sent back onto the subs, Ben? You don't understand. I could have had class. We don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Theo, here goes. We'll run through this one more time. It is now up to me to carefully study your all-time sporting highlight. Pick an athlete that I feel most closely resembles you and your sporting achievements and then give you a score out of 100 to see if you can overtake fellow Corcornian Samantha Barry's 78 points from last week. 
and put you in pole position to be crowned our non-sportsperson sportsperson for 2023. So you pick up lots of points for your, your love of Napier Sheik, your dad's tireless work setting up the club, your beautiful evocations of going to hurling games, both big and small. This is all stuff that's very much in my wheelhouse. You're speaking my language. The courage it takes to go from the sedate surroundings of the Napier Sheik GA Club to the absolute wrong-uns and hard shawls of the Cork sailing scene shows an adaptability and bravery more in keeping with your fellow Northsider, Sean Ogo-Halpine. I will, however, have to take into account your own self-admitted psychological limitations as a hurler and also for your simple refusal to just get a flight home from Cape Horn. You could have made it in 18 hours, even taking into account connecting flights through Amsterdam or Dubai. Why didn't anyone suggest that? That's all I'm saying. I'm just saying. Taking all in all, and with respect at all times for the algorithm that binds this entire flimsy set piece together, I'm happy to tell you that you have scored 76 points Good enough for a mid-table position after three shows. Theo Dorgan. Story of my life. Mid-table position. <laughs> mid-table respectability. There's a lot to be said for the much maligned mid-table respectability. Theo Dorgan, this has been your sporting... A round of applause, please, for Theo Dorgan. Thank you so much. Well, that's great, Craig. Can we start again now? That's the brilliant Ruin Your Night by Dublin Circa Richardson on Second Captain Saturday. Murph, come on. Come on. You, you really thought you'd get away with comparing yourself as a sailor to a man who has looked death in the eye at, and I'm going to say it myself because it sounds very satisfying to say, at La Costa de la Muerta. Hold on a and second, Ruin. I made absolutely no such comparison whatsoever. <laughs> I was the world's most useless passenger. I thought I made that quite clear. I may have led you into it, to be fair. Okay, well. We listen. all share culpability in this matter. But listen. <laughs> His journey, his just about successful journey through that particular part yeah. of the deep sea has got him second place in our competition this yeah. year. And so I mean, it's all you know, in the end. yeah, I mean, successful as in not dying. I mean, that, that, you know, I think we could set the bar a little higher than that, old, but this, nevertheless. That's it for today. We're back next week with a very special guest. He's been a writer for two American cultural institutions in The Simpsons and Saturday Night Live. And he's hosted the biggest late night talk shows on American television. It's the brilliant, clever and very, very funny Conan O'Brien. Irish next Conan O'Brien. He's the very Irish Conan <laughs> O'Brien. I probably should have said. This has been a Second Captain's production for RTE. The show is produced by Killian Down. Mark Horgan is the series producer for Second Captains. Our thanks to Johnny Lanagan in RTE. You can hear us on our full roster of shows during the week at secondcaptains.com. So please do come and give our podcast a try there. Stay tuned to RTE Radio 1 for Saturday Sport right now. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Second Captain, first Captain, whatever. 